from the message. But in our time, something new has been added. What Moses and the prophets witnessed to all those years has happened. The God setting things right that we read about has become Jesus setting things right for us. And not only for us, but for everyone who believes in Him. For there is no difference between us and them in this. Since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners, both us and them, and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us, God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, He put us in right standing with Himself. A pure gift. He got us out of the mess we're in and restored us to where He always wanted us to be. And He did it by means of Jesus Christ. May God bless these words to our understanding. I want to thank Eric for sharing those scriptures with us, and I want to offer a special thank you for, to Angie for beautiful words. And David, that was one of the most amazing pieces I've ever heard you play, so thank you very, very much. It kind of teed us up for our time of thought today, and so let's be in a spirit of prayer together. Let us pray. Oh God, where we might want to put up walls, help us to take those down and to build bridges where we might not want to hear difficult truths, help us to have courage and to lean in and to listen. And God, in the places where we might be afraid to talk about things because it is uncomfortable or we're just not quite sure what to do, remind us that where two or more are gathered, you are there, that your son is with us always, when we soar, when we stumble, and all of those days in between. So be with us this day as we seek to hear your truth and your word uh, in this text. Amen. <clears throat> and again, from those texts, for there is <clears throat> no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And from the message... Since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners, both us and them, and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us, God did this for us. Though I'd never recommend hip replacement surgery unless you really need it, like I did, these past two weeks, as I've recovered from that procedure, at home, disconnected from church work and from the whole world in a way, it has been a gift, a chance to think and to pray and consider just what the job of the church is in these strange and scary and tumultuous times and what my job is as a Christian and a pastor and a citizen as well. Strange and scary and tumultuous times, a hundred-year pandemic and a sometimes so incompetent, even deadly, governmental response to this national emergency and an economic collapse brought on by COVID-19, and then the death of George Floyd in a time of racial reckoning 
as we have not experienced as a nation since at least 1968. More than one of my friends jokingly suggested to me, you know, John, maybe you should have stayed in the hospital. But here's an interesting truth to consider. We do not get to choose the historic times we live within, right? Our grandparents did not choose to survive the Depression and fight a world war, and yet they did. Our parents did not choose to live through the upheaval of the 60s and the social unrest and violence that decade saw, and yet they did. And so now, we in this generation, in a way, this is our time to figure out as Christians and as Americans what God might be asking us to do in these days, these amazing days. And so, friends, this I truly believe. We cannot, we must not stand on the sidelines while our nation wrestles with self-understanding and the sins of our history. We cannot pull within and embrace just personal pietism alone, no. We also claim a faith in our United Church of Christ tradition that has always engaged with the world and seeks to transform the world for the good, for justice and hope and peace for all of God's children, no one left out or left behind. Now, when it comes to thinking about and talking about issues of racial justice, let me be the first to confess I'm not really sure what this conversation is supposed to look like. I'm certainly not one to have any quick or easy answers to this 400-year-old problem. I've got a lot to learn. I've got a lot of listening to do. I'm groping around for solutions and ways that I can respond, and I pray that I will do the right thing in God's eyes. And so, Friends, I ask all of us to enter into this unity and nationwide dialogue, this Pilgrim Church dialogue, too. We who amazingly have blessed to be loving partners with our brothers and sisters at Bethel African Methodist Church for almost 30 years. Friends, we can do this well, and we can do it with respect and humor and humility and most important, with love for neighbor, for self, and for God. That's why this summer, for our summertime book and sermon series, I've chosen The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas for our focus. This 2017 New York Times bestseller was a runaway young adult hit. It tells the story of Star Carter, a young African-American woman who lives in tension between two worlds, the privileged world of the private prep school she attends as one of only a handful of students of color, and then her neighborhood, a challenged and sometimes violent place, but also her home. The core of the story is the death of her best childhood friend at the hands of a white police officer. The book follows Star as she comes into consciousness, and she invites the reader to come along too. Now, I have to say, this book is not one that will shock your kids by its language or situations, but it may shock you a bit. Yet it powerfully portrays larger questions of life and community. 
of the eternal struggle of all of God's children, all of us, to find a way to live with each other in our differences, in love and in justice. To start the sermon, I'd like to show a very short film clip from the 1992 film Unforgiven that tells the story of an outlaw and gun for hire in the mythical West. In this scene, the outlaw, played by Clint Eastwood, comments upon the struggles of a young man nicknamed the Schofield Kid, a novice and nervous gunfighter who has just been forced to kill a man who threatens the life of a woman. And now that kid has to face into the truth, the ugly truth, of what he has done in taking that life. We all have it coming, kid. We all have it coming, kid. That's the line that always convicts me in that scene. Eastwood's cold and clear and, for me, true assessment of the human condition and one inevitable, inescapable truth all of us face in this life. We all sin. We all sin. In St. Paul's words, we all fall short of the glory of God. Everyone. No one left out. That's why we need God's grace and God's forgiveness found in the life and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. No one is perfect morally or ethically or spiritually. We want to do our best, but sometimes end up doing our worst. We have the best of intentions, but sometimes cannot or do not follow through. We know what the right thing is to do, and yet we fail to do that right thing. Now, in that scene, that poor kid, he tries to justify what he's done in pulling the trigger. They had it coming, he argues, but Eastwood won't let him get away with that. And he reminds him, and we, the audience, we all have it coming. No one is perfect, blameless, without sin. No one. Not the greatest saint, nor the worst criminal. Not a churchgoer or an atheist. Not a lifelong Christian or a lifelong agnostic. Nor anyone, anywhere on God's green earth. We all fall short. We all stumble. We all bumble. We all screw up and make mistakes and hurt ourselves and hurt others and let down God. As the advice columnist Abigail Van Buren noted many years ago in commenting upon communities of faith, the church is a hospital for sinners and not just a museum for the saints. I can't speak for you, but I know I come to church and practice my faith not just to be confirmed by God, confirmed by God in who I am, but also transformed by God, transformed into someone I aspire to be, more loving, more just, more peaceful. Now, in the book, one of the key pivotal scenes is a confrontation between Star and her best friend Haley, a white girl and a very privileged young woman. Haley is angry because Star has not told anyone at the school that she witnessed the shooting and that it was her childhood friend who was killed. Star is posting more and more on her social media account about black lives and racial justice. And now Haley has stopped following her online because all of those posts make her very uncomfortable as a white person. Star confronts Haley about this and about a racist joke that Haley made around the lunch table one day. And Haley explodes with defensiveness and anger. She says, 
I'm not apologizing because it was only a joke. It doesn't make me a racist. I'm not letting you guys guilt trip me like this. What's next? Do you want me to apologize because my ancestors were slave masters or something stupid? Haley is responding to the notion that she might be racist in her views, in her talk, in her actions. Well, like many folks. Like I might if someone called me out for making a stupid or hurtful joke. Or maybe like you might too. So she gets defensive. She gets angry. She goes into denial. She refuses to face in the very, into the very real possibility that as a white person, as a person who has essentially lived a life of great privilege, that she may actually have some responsibility for the ways in which the world has continually holds back and discriminates against and hurts and threatens people of color, like her so-called best friend, Star. Friends, here's the hardest and the first step, I believe, in beginning to overcome the sin of racism in our lives, in our communities, in our nation, and in our world. It's having the courage to face into the truth that in large and small ways, that consciously and unconsciously, that in ways that are so obvious and that in ways are so hard to understand, we are all, all a part of the problem of racism. All of us. No one is exempt. No one is left out. No one is perfect nor, quote, colorblind nor unbiased against the other who is different than us who has a different skin color or speaks a different language or claims a different ethnic background or lives in a different culture. Friends, we all sin. We all have it coming. It seems to be hard-baked into the very bones of humanity to be afraid of, to feel threatened by, to even see as less than the child of God we share this world with who does not look like us or talk like us or live like us, or believe like us. Friends, that's the essence of racism, othering, othering another, making them into a stereotype or an object or a one-dimensional person, a thug, if you will, or a welfare queen, or a drug dealer, or a troublemaker, or you get the picture. Now, some folks have called racism America's original sin. I'd go farther and say that racism and bias of all types, this is the original sin of humanity, of the whole world. And friends, I truly believe until we can face into this, until we have the courage to talk about it openly and to talk about it without feeling threatened, until we can own our piece of that larger human transgression, Nothing will change. Nothing. Things might actually get worse. So my hope for us as a church and for us as Americans and citizens and for us as a world is that we can begin this dialogue. We can commit to listen. Just listen to the very real pain and suffering that our brothers and sisters of color experience in this world every single 
day for all of their lives. We can have the humility to face into the truth that we are all to blame in a way for racism and how this sin continues to haunt us and our nation and all creation with violence and death and sadness and fear. I do believe God in Christ can redeem us, can redeem the whole world, but first, we need to talk about it. We need to listen. We need to learn. We need to get real. We need to confess that we all have it coming. May our God bless us as we begin this work, God's work, the work of reconciliation and of love. Let all God's people say, Amen.